Hello, and welcome to the Scripts and Scribes podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Fukunaga. For more great interviews and resources on the craft and business of writing, be sure to check out our companion website, scriptsandscribes.com. But first, I'm pleased to have on a lit manager and producer who started his career running a New York-based theater company, Blue Lion, before moving to Los Angeles in 2006, where he worked as an assistant at CAA and then joined Winkler Films as a development and production executive. He launched his own management company, Fourth Floor Productions, in 2010, and in May of 2014, he teamed up with fellow CAA alums, agent Matt Rosen and producer Brian Kavanaugh-Jones to form Grandview, where he currently reps a strong roster of writers and filmmakers in film, television, video games, and new media. Mr. Jeff Silver, thanks for coming on today, Jeff. That's a pretty good bio. Yeah. I like that. You've done your homework. That's pretty good. Absolutely. Absolutely. I have to fact fact check and see if that's actually true. I'm not sure if any of that's legit. Um, as far as I know, it's all true all uh, right. and impressive, and uh, you, thank you for joining me today. It's awesome to have thank you. you. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure. We normally st- like to start off the interviews, and we'd like to find out more about you. Where and what did you study, and how did you first become interested in working in the entertainment industry in general? Sure, sure. I'll give you the, uh, the, you know, the, the medium to short version so I don't bore you and your listeners with <laughs> tears. But uh, I was raised in New York, and, and my father is a, is a, a physician. And uh, part of his sort of pro bono giving back was he used to run clinics for something called the Actors Fund and Broadway Fights AIDS. And so as a kid, as a child of the 80s, uh, just like everybody else, I was you know, up in front of the, uh, the boob tube watching TV, watching Star Wars, watching everything. But we'd also go to theater quite often when I was a kid as sort of a payback from the Actors Fund to my dad for his services. They would just do house seats to every show. So about once every three or four weeks, I'd, uh, I'd get to go into Big Bad City and, and see a Broadway show. So that was, that was really pretty exciting. And that, that probably started my, my love of, of not just film and television, but also theater. Um, went to school at a small liberal arts school called Union College in upstate New York. And then spent about a year studying in London, studying English and theater there. And came out uh, in 2003, really not knowing what I wanted to do. Uh, I was actually uh, doing a bit of theater myself and trying to figure out exactly where to go and where in the arts I I belonged. And a couple of friends and I uh, started this company called Blue Lion Productions. And it it really came out of about 10 people drinking really bad boxed wine in my apartment in Midtown Manhattan in 2004. And everybody going, you know what? Screw it. Let's just let's just put on a show. Let's just see where we go and let's just put on a show. And and cut to we had this this little tiny you know somewhat successful theater company down at Theater for the New City on First and Tenth uh, on the Lower East Side, uh, actually not in the East Village. And um, we were there for a couple of years and then and then you know moved out to L.A. in 2006. Oh, cool. And then I guess you got your first job at as an assistant at CAA once you were in in L.A. And then obviously that turned into being an executive at Winkler and then starting. Yeah, I had a weird, I had a weird experience. I met, I, I came out, I met somebody at a party. I didn't know anybody. I mean, I just had a, had a really crappy studio apartment uh, in Hollywood. I didn't know anybody. I met, I met someone who worked in television at a party and he said I should go work at CAA. And I was so green. I said, well, that, that sounds great. What's CAA? And <laughs> sort of laughed at me and then and then uh, we smoked a couple cigarettes and he, he sort of walked me through what the entertainment industry looked like and so I, I got a job at CAA uh, because I was an incredibly fast typer years and years of video games finally paying off nice. so for everybody who's still still playing Madden or still you know playing Call of Duty keep doing it it'll pay off at some point <laughs> and um, 
got a job at CA working in the motion picture literary department for a wonderful woman named Jill Cutler. Uh-huh. I, I fell in love with it and wanted to be an agent. I was really excited. I, I, I bought a couple suits. I actually saw Derek Jeter in the lobby my first day. This is at the old CA building where you could sort of see everybody who was walking in. Right. And for a New York kid to move across the country and see Derek Jeter ten, from 10 feet away, that's, that's, that's kind of mecca. So wanted to be an agent. And then my boss left the company pretty early on, about three months into me working with her and for her. She went to go run Urban Winkler's company, Winkler Films. Mm-hmm. She had enough of agenting and wanted to transition to being a producer. And I got incredibly lucky. Uh, we had gotten close quickly. And she said, if you come with me, we will make you an executive. And about four months after I started in the entertainment business, I was a creative executive for Urban Winkler, which was really an incredible break. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Um, And what are some of the things that working at Winkler that you learned as a development and production exec that help you as a manager and producer? Well, I, I want to clarify quickly. I, I'm actually just a manager. I did make one movie and, and had a blast doing it. But right. And I can talk more about the setup of our company of Grandview and, and our sister company, Automatic, in a little bit. But, but really what I focus on is just literary management. And, you know, the first thing Erwin taught me, it's, it's funny. I don't know how much it has to do with actual management, but it was so cool. Uh, he was working on a movie called Vintage Muscatel, which later got made by somebody else. Uh, and I, the, the, the title changed, but it's Richard Gere as a, uh, as a homeless person who, who fights, uh, fights a, a court battle and, and gets back his daughter in the process. And Irwin and sat me down in his office and taught me how to budget and schedule a script, mm. which was the coolest thing ever. I mean, mm-hmm. I've been out here for about four minutes, and I'm sitting along with this titan of the industry, this Oscar-winning producer, sure. as he shows me how to you know, full-on schedule shooting a film. Very, very, very cool. Beyond that, in terms of the, the practical lessons that I learned, it was really a two-year crash course in development of scripts and navigating the business. We were a really interesting company. Irwin, again, legend of the business, but we were sort of sandwiched by the strike and the recession. Right. He had lost his deal at Sony. He had just directed a film called Home of the Brave, which was not a success at the box office. And, you know, he was at a, a crossroads in his career. And old school producers, as wonderful as they are, didn't seem to be as in demand. And so we were constantly scrounging for material. We were constantly trying to get ahead of our producing competitors. We were trying to develop new ideas all the way from the ground up. So it was really nice to be at a place that, A, could show me the ropes in this amazing way, uh, because he produced all these amazing films, but B, it was never really comfortable. There was still that hunger and that necessity to find really great material, develop it, sell it, and get it made. Mm-hmm. And talking about going from an executive at Winkler to joining the ranks of reps at Fourth Floor, how did you make that transition and, and what inspired you to do that? That was, that was a complete mix of uh, luck and failure all at the same time. <laughs> uh, and and I, I say that completely earnestly and completely truthfully. Uh, the company was starting to fold up. Uh, it's sort of the end of 2009. Uh, there was just, just not a lot going on with the company. Again, we were sort of in the teeth of the recession. My boss, Jill, had, had now was now leaving the company herself to move on to something else outside the business. And I found myself without a job. And I tried to get a couple of projects going as a producer, and I'm sure everybody who's listening, I'm sure you can attest that there is no harder job, uh, certainly in the film industry, maybe in the world, than uh, being an independent producer with no credits and no material. Mm. Uh, It is a very, very steep hill to climb. You don't even know where to start. But 
tried to start as best I could, and I'd always been fascinated with representation ever since I worked for the, at, at the agency for a short time, and I really liked the idea of being hands-on with somebody, um, being hands-on with a client, developing their material, and really trying to figure out where they wanted to get to in their career and helping them as best I could. But no company would have me. I had no clients. The, the economy was in the tank. The film business was nothing. The TV boom was sort of hitting, but hadn't really hit the way it's hit right now. And so I had two friends, two guys, uh, one guy named Adam Mervis, one guy named George Parr, and beer-drinking, football-watching buddies, and one had written this script called The Philly Kid, and one had written this play called Coming In From The Rain, and the three of us sat down and started chatting, and, and they basically said, we want you to manage us, we want you to be our manager, and I, I said to them both, you guys are very sweet, that is an absolutely terrible idea. <laughs> I have no idea what I'm doing, and we're good friends. So I really don't want to fuck up your careers and fuck up our friendship. Uh, I'd rather, if I'm going to do this, let me screw up somebody else's careers and figure out what to do. And uh, they, they, they both laughed and said, well, well, here's the deal. We know that no one will work as hard as you. We know that you have everything to prove and everything to gain. Um, we know that you will never intentionally do anything that would hurt us. You know, we trust you from the beginning and trust is such an important thing between a rep and a client, especially a manager and a client. Uh, we already trust you to the fullest. And of course, number four, no one else will take us. So you're really our only choice. Uh, <laughs> and so, and so the, the, the next day I woke up after, you know, we had a couple, of, uh, a couple of glasses of scotch and the next day I woke up and, and registered for an LLC called Fourth Floor Productions and sort of started the company uh, on the fourth floor of our house. Nice. Now, jumping to the present, after running Fourth Floor for, what, four years or so, then yep. you, you ended up teaming up with Matt Rosen and Brian Kavanaugh-Jones and right. started up Grandview a little over a year ago. How did Grandview come about, and who first came up with the idea of you guys all joining forces and teaming up? Well, it really depends on who you ask. Okay. But, um, out of the three of us. But um, I, so, so to sort of fast forward through where I started sort of in my gym shorts with a phone and a laptop and those first two clients, the third guy I signed was a, is a wonderful man named Andrew Dodge, who mm -hmm. later went on to write Bad Words mm -hmm. and is now uh, writing this new film for Peter Dinklage. It's going to start shooting hopefully later this year. Um, and things started, things started getting going. We were building a client list. I, I was making enough money after about two years to hire an assistant. Uh, mm -hmm. His name was Chris Goble, and uh, I was then no longer in a house. By the way, when I started the company, when I started Fourth Floor, it was, and we can come back to this later, I was living in this great house up in uh, the Hollywood Hills in Laurel Canyon, this beautiful, beautiful house. And the reason it was called Fourth Floor is because my office was on the fourth floor. Mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, one of the other three people in the house uh, was on the first floor, and he was a young trainee at CAA named Matt Rosen. The house was actually on Grandview Drive. Nice. And so that sort of takes us to today. So I then moved out of that house and was, and was working out of now a two-bedroom apartment. The second bedroom was absolutely tiny. It was about the size of a lavatory at a Starbucks. And um, Chris came in, was my assistant. We built his desk together on, on his first day. And it, we just started you know, building the company. About two years after that, Chris had a couple of clients of his own and was really ready to give it a shot as a manager. And uh, they, they, somebody named Zach Frognowski came to us from Gersh, who's, who's absolutely fantastic. Mm -hmm. Zach was my assistant for a couple of years. We actually just promoted him. So he is now a manager, and he's got just amazing, amazing taste and is going to do really, really well. So about a year and a half ago, it was myself, Chris, and Zach. We had about 30 clients between the three of us, writers and filmmakers. And we were 
on a bit of a roll. We were getting movies made. We were getting writers staffed on television shows. We were selling development and getting things on the air. It was all really exciting. And we started to realize that as a, as a really small place, what we were missing was the resources of a larger firm. Mm-hmm. Now, the converse of that is, what we did have was we had a great culture. The three of us loved working together. We loved our clients. We loved busting our ass for our clients and putting in 80-hour weeks and reading fifth drafts and really doing everything we could to help navigate through business, through finance, through strategy, where our clients needed to get to. Um, when you go to a much bigger place, sometimes you lose that culture. We also had gotten to a place where we were not producing at all, and that was really important because we, were, we felt as though to produce really, really well and to manage really, really well, those are both two very difficult jobs. Mm-hmm. There is often a conflict of interest, and even if there's not a conflict of interest, there's so many hours of the day, in the day, and rather than just be pretty good managers and pretty good producers, or, or maybe even okay producers and okay managers, we wanted to be the best managers in the business and let the producing fall by the wayside. Now, that's hard to, to join an established company. So, the three of us were trying to figure out what to do, and my, my dear friend, Matt Rosen, had gotten married and was uh, doing an amazing job uh, being an MP lit agent at CAA. And Matt had gotten married. I was the best man in his wedding, and, and he, he had come back from his honeymoon, and I said, you know, I, I really want to try to start something bigger. Come on, come on, come on. And he had his great, you know, fantastic job at CAA, and he said, you're out of your mind, but you should talk to my friend Brian Cavanaugh-Jones, who's running a production company and might want to start something on the management side. So I went and sat down with Brian. Uh, Brian was doing this amazing job. He had left CAA about, uh, about the same time I'd left Winkler's company. And in the four and a half, five years I'd been a manager, he'd been a producer, and he'd gotten 24 films off, off the ground all outside the studio space. Wow. Everything from movies like Insidious and Sinister that he produced with Jason Blum uh, through more auteur-driven stuff. He produced all of Jeff Nichols' movies. You know, so, so he really was able to, both from an elevated genre, from a prestige pr- perspective, get movies going outside the system, which I thought was really, really impressive because most of the work I'd done was inside the studio system. Mm-hmm. So Brian and I started talking about what a, what a new type of management company would look like where there was one side of managers who did not produce at all, and then there was a production side of the company that didn't manage it all, so you really didn't cross the streams. Um, we were having a great time talking about it, and as we got closer to wanting to announce something, uh, you know, I think we were having so much fun, and we kept teasing Matt that we'd be having so much fun without him <laughs> that we finally, we finally got him to, uh, you know, to, to join us in our quest, and we started the company about a year ago. Yeah, no, that's great to hear, because we always ask managers about the, that sort of manager-producer aspect of your job. And it, you get varied responses, but to hear what you're saying, I think, is, is sort of refreshing and unique. So, uh, well, but listen, um, there are there are some managers who are fantastic producers. There's mm-hmm. no question, and and we're listen, we're lucky. I, I I think one of the challenges of being an agent is it's that it's that jets and sharks thing, right? You're either part of one crew, you're part of one crew, and you hate every other crew. Right. I, I there are managers at, at all over town that I like and respect and enjoy their work, both on the management side and the production side. I think it is hard to scale a business doing both, doing mm-hmm. both really, really well. Uh, and I think as agencies get bigger and as you know, production companies start to you know, fade away a little bit, what you're left is with some really wonderful producers out there that you can pick and choose from. But the agencies are so big and the, the market, the international market is so big, having somebody by your side 24-7 helping you navigate through with their only agenda being your agenda, 
I, I'm not trying to produce your work and then produce something on top of that. I'm just trying to help you get your stuff done. Seems to be really refreshing, and I think the town has taken to it. Yeah, no, that's great. Talking about clients and how much you respect your clients, this is, I think this is a, actually a pretty good question. Uh, I saw it on the, the forums of Dundeal Pro, and I thought it was an especially interesting and insightful question. How do you define a successful relationship between a client and a manager? You know, what are some of the signs that it's really working well, other than sales and deals being signed, of course? You know, it's funny. I actually don't look at sales and deals being signed as as successful relationship. Cool. Uh, th th that is success, no question, right? Mm -hmm. You sell a spec for a million bucks, that's success. You get a television show on the air, that's success. A successful relationship and success in the marketplace are two different things. Right. I, I think it's honestly, it, a successful relationship is is parallel to one that you'd have with a spouse or a friend in so much as it's about mutual trust, mutual respect, a lot of communication, right? Uh, and everybody being on the same page. So whether you are a assistant on a television show and you're hoping to get one episode as a staff writer the next year, or whether you have written four films in the past six years and you're trying to figure out what's next, I think that the, the bottom line success of a relationship comes with a representative trusting the artist that they represent, an artist trusting the representative, both being able to lead, both being able to say, this is something I really believe in, hear me out, and going forward with an openness and a plan. I think, I think the thing that we preach over here more than anything else is this is a really fun business, but it's a really, really hard business. And unless you have a plan and a strategy that's going to take you from where you are to where you want to be, mm -hmm. you're sort of running as fast as you can in quicksand. Right. So I think if you're communicating well, and if you have a strategy, now you have to be malleable and you have to be flexible because th that, this is that sort of business. But if you have a prepared strategy that can be flexible, you're communicating openly and honestly with each other on a creative and a strategic and a fiscal level, I think you're in a great, great relationship. Right. Now that sounds great. You're obviously very busy. How many scripts would you say you read in an average week, including scripts from your clients, prospective clients, projects in various stages of development from around town, perhaps even research-wise or whatever? How many do you think you read in an average week? You know, it's, it's funny. It's changed. When, when I first started, I probably read parts of 25 or 30 things a week. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of it was incoming submissions. A lot of it was potential clients. And so, you know, I would read X amount of pages of something and then go, okay, this, this is for me or is not for me. And either, either put it down or keep going. So there was a lot more of sort of, you know, sifting through, uh, looking, looking, for a, uh, looking for a diamond. Now I, I have to read closer because I'm reading projects for filmmakers we represent to come on board that better be a really close read so you can talk about the strengths and the weaknesses of that script or you're reading a draft of a client script about to go in or you're reading a potential client that my staff over here has read and is really liked and they're they're handing it to me and you really have to take it very very seriously so i would say i've gone from reading parts of 25 or 30 scripts to really reading you know all of anywhere between 10 and 15 scripts a week gotcha what are some of the more unorthodox ways you've discovered potential clients, or is it pretty much mostly come from referrals? Unorthodox ways. That's a, let's see. I mean, it's mostly been referrals. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I do a lot of business in Europe and in the UK, but that's, that's a heavy referral-based business as well. Um, but, you know, really it's been about people saying, you know, I've got this friend you should represent, or, you know, I've been working with this writer, they just fired their manager, they'd like a change of scenery, would you, would you want to meet them? Um, here's, a, here's a good one. Um, 
I, uh, I represent uh, this uh, wonderful couple, this husband-wife financier out of India. Um, their names are Shauna and Raz Ball. Hmm. And Sha- I've actually known Shauna for about 12 years now. We met in an acting class in New York City. And we did we did some improv together in this in this you know, it's studio called the Michael Howard Studio in New York on, on West 25th Street back in 2004. And about six months ago, she reached out. We hadn't spoken in years, saying, "My husband and I are in town. We'd love to get together." And we now represent them as producers and financiers. Wow, so that's cool. There you, there you go. Yeah, no, that's cool. Awesome. Uh, and that's again the importance of of networking and relationships because something like that can happen. So that's awesome. You know what? I, listen, I think it's it, it's such an it's such a wonderfully insular business yeah. that I, I you know yes, it, networking is important, but I also think just being the best person that you can possibly be to absolutely everybody you meet right. is l- listen. It's important in life, right? Yeah. But people people remember people you know who who did great things for them and and and, and were nice to them and gave them the time of day. You know, uh, we just sat down, Matt, my partner, and I just sat down with the president of one of the networks who uh, we had reached out to. When when we had started our company, mm-hmm. and at that time he uh, was between gigs, and said, "Guys, when I get settled, I'm I, I'm going to have you in. And we're going to chat a little bit." And we got a call a couple months later saying this person wants you to come in. And I thought it would be about a you know it's a president of a network. I thought it would be a 12 minute meeting. We'd talk about a couple things and then get out. And instead he met us at a coffee shop and gave us 90 minutes of his time. Wow. And we had a great free flowing Q and A. And all that was because we picked up the phone and said, we respect your work. We're starting a company. We'd love to be in business with you. We'd love to sit down at some point. And so making the calls, saying, saying good things to people, really meaning it, identifying the people that you want to be in business with and, and trying to be nice to everybody, whether they are on top, in the middle, or on the bottom, I, I, I think that is, that's the great takeaway there. Yeah, no, that's a great philosophy, and that's, that's awesome. I think our culture is, is the most important part of what we do here, yeah. and strategy comes out of culture. I'm totally ripping that quote off. Patrick Weitzel said that about Endeavor about 15 <laughs> years ago. But right. it's true. It's true. Strategy comes out of culture. And, and I think that people sometimes think culture means everybody getting along in the office. And that's absolutely part of it. But that also means treating the community with a certain level of respect and a certain level of grace. And so we try to make our culture not just felt internally, but also externally. That's very cool. I wanted to touch base on something that I think is uh, newer writers we get asked a lot. They're concerned with their ideas being stolen and signing release forms and all this kind of stuff. How common is it for a rep or a producer to steal a writer's ideas? Well, let's see. It's about 5.45 on Monday. Right. I've stolen four ideas so far today. <laughs> so, that's, um, you, you know, I, I get the fear. I get the anxiety. I think it's totally warranted and justified up to a point. I have not, I've been doing this for, 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 I've been in the business for nine years now, almost nine years. I have not, I cannot think of one very, very blatant idea theft that I have, that I have seen or heard about. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny. I was trying to represent, uh, this, uh, this director in London, uh, about a year ago and I ended up not representing him for, for a variety of reasons, but he had an amazing idea for a television show. Just amazing. Um, I, it was one of the best ideas I've ever heard. And he never did anything with it. And I've never seen anybody, anybody do anything else with it. And, it, you know, as much as I would love to give that to a writer, you know, you, you just can't do it. Now, some people might, might be a little less scrupulous. But ultimately, here's what I will say. Most of the films and most of the television shows that get on the air are some variation on an idea we've already seen. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I just saw uh, Ex Machina over the weekend, and I absolutely loved it. That is a great movie. The idea of, and I don't want to ruin this for anybody who hasn't seen it, so I won't go too deeply into it, but the idea of, of a man sort of building robots, that's not a new idea, right? right? I, mean, I mean, that's that's an idea that we've seen in movies for the, for the past 80 years. The way that it's told is what's important. Those details that make up Alex Garland's script and then his film, mm-hmm. that's where the beauty is. If you look at Breaking Bad, it's still a story about a man who has a criminal empire while trying to balance his family. Now, that log line is almost the same as The Sopranos, right? right? The way into the story is completely different. So I would say to writers who are, who are listening to this, or writers anywhere, be less concerned about the story you're tell, telling and be more concerned about the storytelling because that's what's going to differentiate you. There's so many good ideas out there, and there's also so much that's been done before that when you tweak something and you give it more specificity and you run it through your own filter of how you see the world, that is the beauty in what, what you're going to bring to a script, and that's something no one can take away from you. Right. Now, that's great. Be more concerned with your storytelling than you are the story you're telling. That's awesome. Awesome. Yep. When writing a spec, should writers be concerned with budget at all? I, I think I think you want to be able to see the movie. Mm-hmm. So so yes, right. I mean, to write something that's going to cost three hundred and fifty million dollars is probably a bad idea. <laughs> but but listen, ultimately, when it comes to film specs, marketing departments are going to rule the day, right? So Sue Kroll at Warner Brothers, how is she going to market this movie? That's what, I, that's what I'd be writing towards. What does the trailer look like? Um, how can we sell this? Whether it's a movie that's sort of more in the independently financed but studio distributed range, like a 10 to 55 or $60 million script, or a script that costs more than 60, which is usually a studio financed film, that kind of matters less as opposed to what's the comp and how will a studio or how will a distributor sell this movie to an audience? I think that's the biggest thing. Right. That's great to think about. What genres of screenplay are, I don't know, let's say harder to sell? Specs are obviously all a challenge to sell, but are there any types or specific genres that are a little more difficult to sell, especially for a newer writer? I mean, what are the types of things that they should be considering when writing a spec? You know, I, I, I hate to give a generic answer, mm-hmm. but great stories sell. Gotcha. They just do. I mean, I, I, I'll give you three examples, and they... they couldn't be further apart of things that we've we've sold you know in recent history my partner Matt uh, sold a spec called Verona which is uh, a, a tale of Romeo and Juliet with a slight twist to it it almost feels like Romeo and Juliet meets 300 big expensive massive set pieces Montague's in the capital it's doing battle in Italy in the 15th century it's awesome um, big big movie I um, sold a very small movie earlier this year called Rocket, and it is the story of the Roger Clemens steroid trials and mm. Brian McNamee, the trainer who was supplying him with steroids. Mm-hmm. Th- th- that's a, th- that is a movie that is incredibly hard to make right. because if Bradley Cooper or Chris Pratt or Chris Hemsworth or, or maybe two other guys doesn't play Roger Clemens, you're probably out. And there's also a lawsuit issue in, in, as well. Now, we, wanna, we, we figured that out early on in terms of getting around a lawsuit and running around that, but that's a very, very small, complicated story. If you do it the right way, it could be Moneyball, it could be the social network, but it's a very high degree of difficulty. Those two stories could not be further apart in size, in scope, and idea, in genre, but both of the writers were relatively new. They'd worked a little bit, but relatively new. We've got a really, really wonderful, healthy deal on both. And now, but it's actually teams that wrote these. And now both teams couldn't be hotter. 
So, you know, it is not about genre, and it's not about size. It's about telling a fantastic story and doing it in a way we haven't seen before. Love it. That's great to hear. We've got a few listener questions I wanted to throw your way. Sure. The first is, you are in the unique position where you represent not just writers, but also filmmakers, in addition to having great knowledge on packaging. What are the things that writer clients should know if they secretly want to make the, secretly want to make that jump to writer-filmmaker? Do they aim for good short uh, shorts, commercials, webisodes, TV movies, cable TV episodes first? Well, the first thing I'd say is that if you want to make that jump, it should not be a secret to anybody. Gotcha. Um, the first thing that we do when we meet people that we would like to represent or that we're talking to about representing is say, okay, what do we want to get done? It's, it's, today is June 1st, 2015. What do, we want, what, what do you want your career to look like in 10 years? Where are we going, right? Mm -hmm. Now, our favorite answer is, I want to scale the mountaintop. Now, maybe if it's a playwright, that's winning a Tony. Or maybe if that's a writer-director, that's, you know, I want to be Chris Nolan or the Coen brothers. Or maybe that's a television writer who says, I want to be Greg Berlanti. I mean, you know, the, 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 we look for talent, we look for ambition, we look for work ethic, we look for character. Yeah. Those four things, right? right? So the first thing I would say is if you want to be a writer-director, boom, look, you're a writer-director, great. Let's figure that out. If you have... How do I put this? It's always easier to gain leverage with writing than it is with directing, mm -hmm. right? Right. And then there's, then there's acting, which has the least leverage possible. But <laughs> with writers, you can write yourself out of anything. If you don't have a job, but you have a great idea, you can go to a coffee shop or your basement or wherever it is that you write and bang out a screenplay or a pilot. As a filmmaker, you are waiting for that thing to sort of come along to you. So I guess I would phrase this as if, if you're a young writer who also aspires to direct, what I would suggest is writing a couple of scripts, using that to put you on the map, put a roof over your head, food on the table, using some of that money to then go direct a short, a short that probably could turn into a feature that you would want to direct. And then you're a known quantity as a screenwriter. You have a short that you're really proud of that you've put together with your reps that is basically an advertisement, not just for a film that you want to go make, but for the fact that you can go direct that film. And then you're off to the races. Great. That's good advice. Here's the next one. I got an eight on the blacklist site on a script I wrote with a partner. But the script also got a seven, a five, and a four. If someone went to the site, they would see average of six. Is it worth referencing our blacklist score in a query? I don't think so. I mean, I don't think anybody's getting excited about a six. That said, maybe not reference the blacklist at all. Uh, I'll be honest. In, when, when you're sending, when people are sending out queries, mm -hmm. I don't often. If the blacklist score was a ten, great. Maybe they'll make me want to read it a little bit more. But really, it's about how good is the email. Because if you can't write an email, you definitely can't write a script. Yeah. Um, and how how interesting is the logline? I sort of just judge off that. Right. But if you're talking about putting saying that we have a six on the blacklist, yeah, I, I wouldn't necessarily uh, broadcast that. Gotcha. And here's another one. Many managers and producers seem to have given different answers to the question of what is voice. So I'm going to ask it a different way. What are some of the things that excited you about a script from a new writer that you discovered and loved enough to sign right away? What things should a writer focus on to develop that voice that excites the rep? What are common mistakes in scripts that make you reject them? You know, I think that the, the most talented people we represent see the world in very specific ways. Everybody, I'm not talking about artists, everybody has their own unique view of the world around us. Mm -hmm. And now whether that is the world on Earth, whether that's a big sci-fi thing up in space, whether this is hundreds of years ago or hundreds of years into the future, we all have a specific way that, that that plays out in our mind's eye. 
I think that's what voice is, right? I think it's your specific imagination. What do you have to say about a certain circumstance that other people might not have to say about something like that? So I'll, I'll give you an example. Rob Askins, who is a wonderful writer who I work with, uh, who's actually got nominated for his, thir- his first Tony Award this weekend for his play Hand to God. Rob, um, the first thing I'd written of his was his play Hand to God, and then uh, this other play he'd written called... Uh, uh, pig shit in Waco City. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, the structure of both of them was a little bit all over the place, but the character and the dialogue was absolutely fantastic. It was sharp, it was witty, it was interesting, and he, he was writing about Hand to God is about a children's puppet ministry in Waco, Texas. Now, Rob's from Waco. Rob has a lot of experience growing up in a town like that that is dominated by the church and had a, had a lot to say about it. And he wasn't beating you over the head with his theme, but he was beating you over the head with his characters. And he was using his characters to push forward his theme. Mm-hmm. So his dialogue was absolutely fantastic. And you could tell that Rob had a lot to say about the world by what he was doing in that play. Yeah. So what, when you talk about voice, you're really talking about what do you have to offer? Mm-hmm. I think that's the best way to put it. I hope that's a little bit more specific. Yeah, no, that's great. Uh, and now we're sort of running out of time. So we'd like to, to end on a section we call reading, watching, playing, and listening. So we want to find out what you're reading, uh, watching, playing, and listening to. Wow. Okay. What am I reading that's, that's not a script, right? Correct. Yeah. Not for all right. So, all right. Okay. So I actually have, I'm about to go on my honeymoon later in the year. Oh, congratulations. Um, I thank you very much. I've got I've got Don DeLillo's Underworld. I've got The Sun Also Rises, which uh, shockingly and sadly I have never had the chance to read. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got this book by Nancy Gibbs and Michael Duffy called The President's Club, uh, inside the world's most exclusive fraternity, which really is, is sort of behind the scenes of the past uh, the past five decades or so inside the White House. Cool. Uh, and then I've got a couple others. I've got Goon Squad, which I haven't read either, which is also sitting on my desk. So those are the four I'm going to bring with me on my honeymoon. Cool. But I have been uh, crushing through whenever I get a chance, and sadly I don't get a chance to do that much reading for pleasure, although I will say all the scripts I read are for pleasure, so I'm a lucky guy. <laughs> but in terms, of, in terms of the last couple trips I've taken, I think I've read one Dennis Lehane novel each trip. Mm-hmm. I cannot get enough of his stuff. The, right. the crime novel stuff really gets me. Cool. And watching, playing, and listening? Um, okay, watching, mm-hmm. uh, I, Game of Thrones, like everybody else, I'm in the middle of, uh, of getting through this current season of The Americans, which I think is probably the most underrated show on television, definitely the most underwatched show on television. It's really, really just a fantastic drama uh, that, that is about Cold War spies, but, but really has nothing to do with Cold War spies. It's about a family. It's about, right. it's about getting in. I don't know if you've seen it, but mm-hmm. it's, it's, just, it's just a great show about two parents trying to figure out how to raise their kids yeah. uh, as they change going through their lives and their kids get older and change. Really, really great stuff. And I'm watching Daredevil as well. And then I try to see as many movies as I can. This weekend, uh, I, I went to the theater and I saw Ex Machina and I saw um, Mad Max and I finally saw The Avengers. And I think I probably have to do a, a day this weekend too of trying to see five or six things. Cool. Uh, last one. Are you playing any games or listening to any music? Oh, man, I wish I was playing games. Uh, my, my Xbox is collecting a little bit of dust right now. Uh, between starting the company a year ago and getting married later this year, I have not had a ton of time. But if I had a little bit of free time, I'd be alternating between um, Madden and Call of Duty uh, to really really zone out with a, with a big bowl of potato chips right next to me. Right. And um, 
and what am I listening to? You know, um, there's nothing that I've heard recently in terms of albums that has completely blown me away. I went to a U2 concert a couple days ago, which I really, really enjoyed. So I'm mostly listening to just, uh, just some classic rock and some soul and some funk. We play a lot of fun stuff here in the office, especially on Mondays, to keep everybody uh, alive and awake and excited. Nice. And then the last thing, do you have any advice for aspiring screenwriters, or is there anything else you want to share? You know, just, just to sum up, mm-hmm. I, would, I, I would say again on, on, that, on, that, voice, on that voice question, yeah. figure, out, figure out your way of telling a story. Going back to what I'm reading right now, Dennis Lehane has a specific way he tells crime stories. They are all about family. They are all about the bonds between family that, that bring us together and drive us apart. And, and he has a very unique way of writing and a very unique way of looking at stuff. That is ultimately what we want, right? It's, it is, by, by unique, I don't mean small and I don't mean weird. I mean specific to what you can do with a story interesting, exciting, shocking, provocative, or, and this is not a dirty thing at all, just abundantly commercial with really wonderful characters. Uh, you can, it, we, we've got these writers right now who are writing a, a project at Fox called The Adventurers Club, which is a swashbuckling, fun, Indiana Jones type of film. It's a hard movie to get made in today's climate, mm-hmm. but I read a draft over the weekend, and they did great. Did they reinvent the wheel? Not necessarily. They just wrote a really wonderful adventure movie, complete with chases all through Africa, boat chases, plane chases, boulder chases, really wonderful characters, a beautiful romance in the middle, characters that you really wanted to follow. So I would say figure out what you are dying to write. It's probably what you're dying to see up there on the screen, and then figure out the best way in to tell that story, because people often think that once they've solved the story, they've also solved the storytelling, and I'd say that's not true. So figure out what you want to tell, figure out how you want to tell it, and then go do the best job you can. Great. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Jeff. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Kevin. And if you have questions about the craft or business of writing, you can send us an email to ask at Scripts and Scribes or send us a tweet to at Scripts Scribes. There's no and in the middle there, just at Scripts Scribes. Thanks for listening.